welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back. Uh, Today we're doing our fourth COVID talk. Again, this is the addiction connection that's been hijacked and now is doing COVID reviews for the Minnesota uh, Echo. Uh, you can go ahead, Heather, if you have more to say. Just like my kids say, the the, the virus that's taken over our lives, taken yeah. over our addiction podcast. So this is basically a recap of today's epi- episode. No, it's not really an episode of Echo. It's more of our hour and 15-minute Echo, which included today uh, Dan Huff and Sarah Vetter from the Minnesota Department of Health, and then uh, Dr. Linda Susi from Mercy Hospital Lina, and then uh, Joe Helley from Centricare kind of finishing up. And we're going to review some of their highlights of what we're discussing today, what's going on in Minnesota, for those of you who could not make the ECHO program over the lunch hour. So I think the big thing that we started off today with Minnesota Department of Health is really talking about the testing. And we did ask him to come and talk about the testing. And I think really remembering that the high high priority people to test anybody who lives in congregate living. I think Minnesota has just seen this uptick in um, deaths from people who live in nursing homes, jails, the, the congregate living area. So really focusing on those patients as well as the the people who work there. So the healthcare workers who work in these high risk areas and healthcare workers and the healthcare workers' families in general, uh, on top of you know dialysis patients, hospitalized patients, patients slightly older than Kurt, sixty five and older, a lot older than Kurt, <laughs> underlying medical conditions, first responders, Unlike and then the, Kurt. not a first responder, and then the child care providers, which I think um, was very interesting, and and I like how he kind of worded that is that you know they've asked that the the, the Governor Walls has asked these child care workers to continue to be able to provide care for especially health care workers' children. And so putting them as a priority to test so they're able to continue to offer this service um, is important. Uh, he did, at the end of that, kind of talk a little bit about the homeless population, just how different that situation is. And that frequently that's a kind of a congregate setting at night, but then these these people tend to be very mobile during the day. And so uh, testing them is really a priority. He spent a little time talking about the number of tests that Minnesota has done. We've actually done about 48 tests per 10,000 residents as of April 5th, which ranks us 32nd out of 50 states. So we're uh, just slightly above average at this point. Don't know if that, you know, it's good to be number one or number 50 on this. Well, we've always in Minnesota been slightly above average. Uh, And again, they've done done about 1,500 tests um, a day roughly on average in Minnesota although it's actually slowed a little bit during the holiday. So uh, as far as getting, uh, th- there's a, a good debate in, in today's Echo about getting tests and who should test and how to test and where to get your testing supplies. I think the bottom line is that MDH will test people, more the bare minimum type things, and they want to they wanna test people to really know what the virus is doing, the surveillance, be able to do the contact tracing, but that 
each individual hospital organization or hospital system really needs to check all of their other commercial contractual agreements, um, whether that be with Mayo, um, Fairview, Abbott, or any other um, lab to see what their testing availability is. Um, Sounds like Mayo has a lot more testing capability right now, and it sounds like their backlog is, is kind of worked through. So really, if you're concerned, one, it's okay to call the MDH, but it's a, a good thing to have your lab personnel call um, and really pursue where your contracts are through to get more testing for your area. Yeah, and one of the things that they uh, also mentioned is that both Fairview and Hennepin Healthcare are, are apparently in the process of kind of increasing that capacity. Um, you know, commercial testing, state testing, it's still a couple of days turnaround time, and a lot of that's the transit time of the test. Um, once the test hits mail's doors, I know it's less than 24 hours to get that get that result done. Um, but that really knowing what your organization has, and then, you know, as far as kids, any kiddo getting admitted, um, any kiddo with any kind of admittable respiratory issue should really be tested um, right away because they, they will um, kind of crump out a little bit fast. Yeah, I think one of the things that they, that he spoke about it right around that same time was a little bit about also these healthcare workers, their families can be tested if it's in their in their household. So that's another really another time where children can be tested if they're in the household of a of a healthcare worker. So I think people need to keep that in mind as well that they also qualify. Yeah, and we there were so many questions um, posted to MDH today, and we're going to kind of ship a lot of those questions off to MDH, and hopefully maybe not by Thursday, but maybe by next Tuesday, have a few more specific answers on the different testing and where we're supposed to get these missing reagents and swabs. Yeah, and I think we'll make sure we send those out to everybody that was either on the Echo or, uh, uh, again, emails our our uh, our coordinator. That'd be Katie Stengel at catholichealth.net. That's K-A-T-I-E-S-T-A-N-G-L at catholichealth.net, and we can get you those. So then my friend Linda Susi, a physician at uh, Mercy, uh, part of Alina, came on to talk a little bit about her experience working with COVID patients at Mercy Hospital. And uh, right now it's uh, it's been very busy for them. They, uh, of course, just like all hospitals, have a census that's been down a little bit. They're not doing the elective surgeries or any of those other things that obviously we've all been, we all stopped doing. Uh, they felt that uh, roughly at this point uh, about 8 to 12 uh, uh, patients are being cared for by each of the hospitalists. Typically uh, uh, now the COVID positive patients are in kind of a separate area and they have certain hospitals that are actually uh, taking care of those patients now. Yeah, I think that's interesting. A couple of weeks ago when we talked with Linda um, on the regular Echo, they hadn't yet switched to that model, and now they're they're definitely separating out the hospitalists to the COVID areas and the non-COVID areas, also recognizing that, you know, you want to try to keep as much of the staff healthy in case, you know, their staff do get sick as well, um, and just limiting the contact. And, and with that, of course, they limit who can get in the building at all as well, closing down most of the doors, um, really preventing visitors and excess people into the building. And a lot of these uh, patients, of course, if it's it's a pretty obvious, uh, sus- you know, obvious case, and they're very suspicious of COVID, these are patients to be placed in what they call their red zone. And uh, even if a patient tests negative, if they have the usual findings in a COVID patient, again, because of those false positives, uh, they will keep those patients in the red zone. The false negatives. Did I say false? Oh, you said false positives. Dang it, false negatives. 
Um, Linda talked a little bit about some of the interesting patients that she's seen. Uh, uh, and I think those patients that are occasionally are popping in with these cardiac issues related to COVID. Uh, and I think that that's something we always have to uh, keep in mind that they're uh, getting these patients with very high troponins. And in fact, she talked about the patient actually got a uh, uh, got cathed and uh, actually had very relatively normal coronary arteries, but uh, did have uh, significant troponin elevations. And so uh, kind of an interesting case uh, that was definitely uh, covid I think, uh, you know, just with all this research and studying we've done with COVID and all the different ways it can be a mildly symptomatic illness to asymptomatic to severe, it sounded like this lady really had a, a fairly mild, pretty typical upper respiratory type infection for a couple of weeks. But then one of the longer term complications of COVID that comes up is this myocarditis or something else like a cytokine storm. But there are these longer term complications that you know, aren't unusual in medicine, but it's just definitely something to be aware of and really getting that history of whether a patient's had a recent respiratory illness, even though their COVID test may be negative because four weeks out, that COVID test is probably going to be negative, not saying they didn't have it. You know, I'm, I think what you're trying to say is that COVID can be a chameleon. Ah, should we say karma chameleon? No. So Linda <laughs> talked a little bit about uh, some of the things that she just noticed in the last three, four weeks of working with this patient group. And one of the things that she uh, had kind of, in, I think, had noticed that was uh, uh, interesting is that frequently when she would see these patients who had lost their taste and smell, almost all those patients she felt were ended up being positive on their COVID screens and um, how very typically when she would examine these patients, their lung sounds would be relatively normal uh, in much contrast to what their chest X-ray or their CT might show. And and just a general thing that that these patients just tended to be really fatigued, the patients that, uh, that just everything was much more difficult for them to do. And they, especially if they were going to take a more severe course, they had just severe fatigue. And I think... Um, some of that with different courses and hospitalizations or the whole push to stay at home and to, to only come to the hospital and to the ER if um, you're that gravely ill. Um, so they have seen some of these false negative tests and, and more likely later into the course of their illness. Um, you know, some of the stuff that we've read talks about other countries, especially in China, when they first started to have this upswing of, of COVID, they would test retest the patient either to make sure they had a couple negatives after a positive prior to letting them out of the hospital, or if they had a very suspicious case, they'd have a couple tests in a row just to prove that it's a true negative. Um, they don't appear to be doing that at, at Mercy right now, um, and that's and just, I, again, and, the resources. Yeah, and I don't think really anybody at this point is really is really doing that. So, so that's uh, that's really the what Linda's been seeing, she talked a little bit about uh, kind of the things that they're following when the patients are in the hospital. And I think those are the things we're all testing for, the ferritins, the CRPs, the D-dimers, and kind of watching those uh, as their hospital, uh, you know, while they're, as they progress in their hospital stay. Well, and especially in those initial, you know, while you're waiting for that test to come back, um, really tracking these. Um, she wasn't doing a lot of repeat imaging studies, which some places are, and I mean, it totally makes sense. You don't want to parade these patients around the building and bring them down to radiology again where they might expose other people, but following these tests, especially while you're waiting for your COVID to come back. Yeah, and I think that there were a lot of questions, and she answered uh, a lot of different questions. I think one of the things that people were wondering is, 
how are they how are they doing as far as patient visits? What are are they trying to see some of them remotely by using the telephone or using iPads? And uh, they're actually doing that at Mercy, especially with some of the consults. Uh, there were some questions about uh, hydration, which has been something that's been talked about a lot in the literature about being very careful not to overhydrate uh, these patients. And uh, she noted that a lot of times when people would come in that uh, often just uh, some resuscitation would be needed in some of these patients, and then they would have normalizing kidney function. So it is something to watch carefully. Watch the, excuse me. Watch carefully. A lot of these patients will also have some acute kidney issues, um, especially on presentation. These acute kidney injuries, and so you need to hydrate them back. And she said a lot of their kidney changes um, would resolve, um, and then when that happens, start to try to encourage the oral intake of fluids if possible. Now there was a little bit uh, mentioned about uh, when they transferred patients out of Mercy hospital. And she talked a little bit about how sometimes when they would, they've had one patient that actually I was on max vent settings and uh, not doing well. And uh, they actually transferred somewhere for ECMO. And that's obviously kind of a last ditch effort. And she uh, really wasn't aware how that patient was doing, but felt that that was probably uh, something that was not going to go well for the patient. And then we finished off after uh, Linda's um, talking again with Homeland Security Emergency Management, first with Joe Helley, from Centric Hair and then finished it all off with Dr. Hick. But um, I think Joe was really right to the point to kind of echo what had happened during MDH's part, just saying that, you know, it's not necessarily that we don't want to test people. It's that we just don't have all the supplies yet, the reagents, the swabs, um, and that reaching out, like we had said before, to all these labs and all these locations to try to get additional supplies um, is really what to do. Um, and then we kind of finally got an answer. Um, they kind of mentioned this anticipated peak or surge um, mid to late June. So for those of us who were thinking it was now or thinking we'd have summer, um, I I did like when Dr. Hicks showed a sense of humor saying next summer can be the summer of Corona beer. This summer is coronavirus. Yeah, hardly funny right now. (laughs) Before. But yeah, I think that we were all a little stunned by that because just two weeks ago, uh, Dr. Hick, Hick was saying maybe late April uh, to sometime in 2020. And uh, I think now the models are kind of showing that it's shifting and it's going into June. And uh, I think that he made a great point, which is uh, he was real glad we were having these echoes twice a week because things change so fast that as they get more and more data, the information that can come out to providers can be uh, really updated. Well, and with the whole pushing this peak and the surge and everything we've been doing, um, they were, I found today when they started speaking, they were a lot more positive and optimistic than they have been in, in past, the past two weeks. What am I saying? I was going to say a long time ago, it was just a couple of weeks ago, but having, they're feeling better about the ICU bed availability, the bed availability, the ventilator availability when, and if that huge peak and surge happens, um, because they've been doing such a good job of acquiring all of this. And it just felt today that they were super confident with, what they have in place. Yeah. I mean, it's it's good and it's bad. I don't think they're saying that there's not going to be a, a big surge. They're still predicting that, uh, which we wish was not happening, but at least we will have the hopefully the facilities to take care of that. So then Dr. Hick, uh, just a couple other things he talked about. Um, there's uh, one of the things that they're really looking at is making sure they had a lot of high-flow nasal cannulas, and that's something that uh, the state has coming to kind of fill those gaps. Um 
He wanted to really impress upon people that this aggressive testing of healthcare workers need to be done. And again, although MDH also said that in these long-term care centers, that's really where exposure is going to cause significant morbidity and mortality. So I really wanted to push people to make make that a priority. You know, and then we had asked the question about, you know, they're predicting this thing to happen in June Yet our stay home Minnesota is expected to now be expired May 4th if what's going to happen. And he was quick to say he can't speak for the governor, um, but did. You know, I could and, speak for the governor. You could. And then you might be in one of those long term care things <laughs> called prison. I'm just kidding. Um, but then men- mentioning how it, different areas of the country and how they reacted, you know, New Orleans never exceeded their capacities, whereas they felt that New York maybe acted a little bit too late, which is why they had this huge, like, out-of-control surge. And so trying to show why it's important to follow these restrictions, even though it seems like there's literally no end in sight, kind of like the marathon. Yeah. So No he, end in sight. Yeah. And he, uh, when I asked him, I said, well, so what you're trying to say is this is not so much a 10K as a marathon. Uh, he agreed that this, what we're doing now is really training for the big run. And so uh, I think it's just really important that we all really make those efforts uh, to be prepared for this. So uh, one of the other things he, he talked about was how interesting this virus is and the way it can act so many different ways. And I think uh, if you're keeping up on the reading, and Heather just smashed into her into her mic, yeah, uh, you know, how it, how it just uh, causes people's demise in such different ways. And again, it's the cardiac, it's the lung, it's the renal. Uh, there's all these different ways that it has caused... Uh, it's damage. And so it's an interesting thing that way. And and he talked a little bit about how the virus really has not uh, changed much. But when it does mutate, uh, the theory really is that most often uh, when these viruses have some minor mutations, that it actually becomes less virulent and causes less trouble. Uh, so we're hoping that just happens. We'll keep our fingers crossed here. I don't know. I explained this to my kids tonight at dinner that the whole, if it looks like a duck and it acts like a duck and it quacks like a duck, even if it's wearing Easter bunny ears, it can still be a duck. So just, I think that's one thing to remember in all these communities where the testing might not be high yet, or there might not be a lot of positives. It has to always be on the differential at this point. And my sons took that and ran with it and trying to explain that it's still a duck mom, even if it has bunny ears. Yeah. And I think it's uh, one of the issues rurally is I think we still have people walking around thinking it's not in rural Minnesota. And I think it's really important as hospital systems that we get that information out there and they understand it is in our communities and MDH has made that clear. Uh, and actually, if you look at the data, that some of the data that came out of Washington State, uh, they have surmised now that, that more than likely COVID was probably in that area for six to eight weeks prior to really having a significant problem with some positives. And again, it was misdiagnosed as other things early on. So I, I think that can easily happen in rural Minnesota that we can think that it's not here and we're looking, uh, maybe looking the other way. It catches us off guard or yeah. at least you, not me. But. N- not me. <laughs> so anyway, um, thank you everybody again if you logged into the Echo today, otherwise for listening to our quick bullet point update on Thursday's Echo. So on April 16th. We are having um, oh, some one of my super good friends. She's actually my mother-in-law's best friend, Dr. Colleen Reed. She's a graduate of the University of Minnesota Medical School, practices out in Salem, Massachusetts. 
she specializes in palliative medicine. So we've had a lot of requests about people um, learning about how to have these end-of-life conversations, how to have these healthcare directive conversations, especially when there's not going to be family around in the hospitals with all these patients, which is just, I can't even imagine when you have to do that, um, to kind of walk through how to have these conversations and kind of the things to look at and what they've seen out there because they have a very, very busy service. Yeah, and, I, and it, interestingly, when we talked to her, it's been a few days now, uh, it was a very sobering conversation. I believe she said they had 78 people on on ventilators. And as we all know, once a patient ends up on a ventilator with COVID, the mortality rate is quite high. And uh, I think it was a sobering thing for us to think about. And I think for those of us that uh, have yet to see the surge, I think it's important to to listen to what she has to say. Um, I think we may also have a little short update from a PharmD uh, on Thursday, just going through some of the drugs that are being trialed, just so we're all kind of aware of that. There are some places that are actually using uh, some of these medications, and I know Dr. Susie talked about um, using some of them as well. So we may consider that as well. We'll, We're still kind of firming up Thursday. So you maybe didn't know that, Heather. I'm doing this without you knowing. All right. So with that, we'll let you go. And again, um, we'll check back on Thursday with COVID update.